Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. We're here at the final episode of season one. I really enjoyed speaking with all of our guests, and I want to thank you for hanging in there as we go on this journey, talking to people who are sharing their journey. In this final episode of the season, I'm speaking with Dr. Jenny Vaughn. Great convo. Let's get into it. Dr. Vaughn, welcome to the show. Hello, Sean. It's great to be with you today. Likewise. Uh, So tell us where you're calling or we're speaking to you from. Uh, You're speaking to me from London. Alrighty. Now, we love to kind of hit some of the professional uh, moments uh, on your journey, but to get started, let's kind of start from the beginning. Tell me where you're born and uh, how your childhood kind of led you to a path in medicine. Well, I was born on the southwest coast of England uh, in a little place called Porter's Head, and I was the middle child. And I don't know what if you know what it's like to be the middle child, Sean, but it's quite a challenge because the uh, older child goes on and does all the trailblazing and may or may not get into trouble. And the younger child, you're kind of expected to look after them a bit. And sadly, uh, my parents did actually split up when I was about 16 or 17. And I found myself right in the middle of that refereeing as Mm. the child, as I had done. And I found that quite hard. But at the same point, it also helped me grow up. And I think that helped me prepare for future challenges because a lot of my life has been about refereeing actually and uh, uh, looking at opposing sides trying to find common ground because you can't always find common ground but you should always try and make progress and see positive things in however dark your situation is and I think that's been a lot of the a recurrent theme in my life where many of your listeners, I'm sure, would identify with this, that when you have dark times, you can either, you know, stay down there or you can try and find a way out. And it's not always obvious when you first start what that way out could be. But if you start putting one foot in front of the other, you can usually find that or you can find people that can help you. Uh, So I think that was the story of my childhood that has subsequently played out and formed a lot of my adulthood. I went to medical school because actually maybe it sounds a little bit, how can I put it, trite wouldn't be quite the right word, but I wanted to help people. It's a common reason for people to think about medicine, but actually that was the reason I did it and that hasn't changed and I have no regrets about what I did, although I did have regrets along the way when things got tough, as we always would, whatever career we're doing, whatever job we're involved in, When things get tough, of course, we question whether we did the right thing. But uh, the events of the last few years have proved to me that actually I did do the right thing. And I feel very satisfied that however long I've got left on the earth, which I hope is a few more years yet, Sean, uh, I did the right thing with my life. And I'm very pleased that I was privileged enough to do medicine. No, that's that's fantastic to hear. Now, was it a straight line to kind of figure out that medicine is where you would focus and where you would help po- people? Sean, nothing about my life has really been a straight line, um, <laughs> but it wasn't a straight line. There's just one other lesson there to learn. I took a year out to do medicine because I, I went, I didn't go to a, a very posh school when I did my final A-levels. Uh, I 
went to a state school and I did well, but not well enough to do medicine. And that was a lot about what we were told. It was We were told that it was very unusual for people to go to medical school from that school. Some of that played out in my head, I think. And I ended up not quite getting the grades. And I remember being pretty devastated at the time. But once again, going back to that thing I was talking about, when you're in a dark place and you don't quite get what you want, uh, you have to try and how do you get yourself out of it? And I took a trip down the local technical college and I went to some adult education classes, which in those days was quite unusual for a 16 going on 17 year, year old girl to turn <laughs> an adult education class. But Sean, those classes, I thought I was a failure. My friends all went off to university. I hadn't quite made the grades. I thought that I'd failed and my rest of my life would be dictated by that but you know it was actually the making of a lot of it because I met real adults there hmm. I did some subjects which I would never have done if I'd stayed in college I would have just repeated all the sciences and the maths but I did some geology I did some English and I had a great time uh, I did some biology which I needed and I helped out in the labs, around the labs. I remember doing that. Uh, I remember being in a 12 block high rise, which is probably, you have many more than 12 blocks, but I was, perhaps it was more than that. It might have been 15 block high rise. And I had this beautiful view of Western Supermare, which you see there's a lot of mud in Western Supermare, <laughs> but there is the sea occasionally sneaking in and rushing back out again. We had an amazing view. And I just did practical things to help out as well as the study. And I really enjoyed that. And I felt good about myself again. I regained my confidence and I got into medical school and I did well there. But it was not a straight line. And that straight line, I thoroughly enjoyed not being on a straight line because I came across people that as a 16 year old, I would never have actually come across who had very interesting life experiences, which is why I agreed to do this program because very often seeing other people's life experience and listening to them is something that changes you. And it certainly changed me and helped me pursue the path that I have. So it's another lesson that I think will come out on some of the later things that we'll, we might talk about. If you think you're in a failure position, you're actually not usually in a failure position. You're in a learning position. And actually that's the thing that can make you ultimately successful. Whereas if you just went in a straight line, you'd never learn about how to deal with failure. And I think that's one of the most important things that I wouldn't say I've, you know, I'm an expert in that, but I've realized the value of failing because I did that and but learned a very important lesson as well that by by failing, you can turn it into something. Yeah, I mean, it's so fantastic to have that growth mindset, which it sounds like you really grabbed a hold on early, early on. Now, one of the things I wanted to uh, touch on is uh, your interest in water. So as I understand it, uh, you had learned some Russian, uh, you had gone on a trip out there and um, kind of discovered that some uh, folks didn't have access to clean water. There were, uh, you know, people who were, uh, you know, drinking uh, unsafe water in Russia. Tell me how kind of water became an area that you gravitated toward and, uh, you know, any of the key moments along the way as you learn more about uh, what was driving that and uh, how you could contribute. I mean, Sean, the water story 
again, is an interesting one because my maths wasn't quite up to doing civil engineering. And I that's why I turned and did biology in, in an extra year. And I hadn't done so well uh, in that particular area. But unfortunately, you don't need to be a maths genius to be a medic. Um, but the, the water story, I was very affected. It was sort of late 80s, Sean, and I was very affected by the fact that I could turn on a tap and just drink what came out of it. But actually, a lot of the world's population couldn't. That was actually my main concern about water at that time was, was what was going on in Africa. There was a lot in the news about lack of access to decent water. But I did go on a school trip to Russia and I was told not to drink the water in the hotels there. So it was obviously, it was more prevalent in Africa, but there were some problems with, with, with water where I was going on the school trip, which I found quite challenging at times because I had to remember that. I had an amazing time in Russia. It was extraordinary learning the language. It was the time of Leonid Brezhnev when, uh, you know, very much the wall was up. And uh, I enjoyed, I remember enjoying a conversation in a very halting Russian because I wasn't very good. I hadn't spent a lot of time learning it by that time with some Russians just outside Red Square and getting so much out of that. I, I think I was a bit of a rebel because at that time it was all about reds under the beds and, you know, communist Russia. So I enjoyed the fact that as a 13 year old, I was sat outside in Red Square and having a chat with the locals. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty fantastic visual yeah yeah i did i did and it was it was a great trip it really yeah, so, there were food so that, shortages there uh which i wasn't used to so it was a big hmm. eye-opener and i flew aeroflot wow so so that happened before you kind of made that decision but uh again probably transformative in how you kind of viewed the world and where you decided yeah. to focus yeah. let's talk about some more of the travels so you know once you are on this path in, uh, in medicine. Uh, I know you've taken some other trips. Uh, tell me about the, the trip to Madagascar. Oh, sure. I mean, Madagascar, the land of legend. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to go there. I have not. But if you had a trip, uh, you have this extraordinary opportunity when you've finished your medical degree. Uh, it's called an elective. I'm sure you've heard of it. Right. And as usual, I wanted to go to the most bizarre place that no one else would have thought of. And I didn't have a lot of money. My parents, I was unusual in the sense that my parents were both teachers. There was a lot of unemployment amongst teachers at the time. So I was one of the few people on a student grant. I remember having literally £10, which had to buy all my food for a week, which these days wouldn't go anywhere, but I managed to do it. So uh, I... I lived in a bit of a dive, but I lived with some fantastic people. So I had very happy memories of that. But essentially, what I did in that uh, elective was apply for money to get myself there. Uh, and I thought, if I apply with the word Madagascar on it, I bet you they're going to cough up because they're going to think that sounds really interesting. I applied very successfully to a lot of different places and ended up making a profit. So that profit, that's not something I felt I could hold on to. So Sean, I, I got on a plane. It was enough to help pay for another doctor to come with me and help towards her expenses. We flew, are you ready for this, Sean? Aeroflot, Aeroflot again. Uh, because by now, this break time, it down for folks who don't know the narrative behind that airline. So that's the Russian airline, and it's the one that I took to the flight to Moscow. 
And at that time, it worked out as 1p a mile, Sean. You couldn't get much cheaper than that. It was a <laughs> fantastically bad flight. The flight <laughs> attendants would come out. It was like feeding time at the zoo. They would throw a load of, well, meals at us, and then they'd quickly run back behind the curtains. Oh, my goodness. It was, it was, it was Aeroflot in, in the early 90s. I've flown them a number of times. I've had no problems at all. Uh, on the flight was very interesting. There were lots of people going out there to do humanitarian things, which I was doing as well. I remember right. there was a nun on the flight. Um, you know, Sean, sure, this was several years ago now, but I can still remember vividly that flight. She had whole bags of clothes because she was taking them for the children. So she'd taken it upon herself to get all these clothes together and she had no hardly any luggage herself. All her luggage was tied up in clothes for children in Madagascar. Uh, so mm -hmm. there were lots of people on the flight who were doing very humanitarian things. Uh, when I landed, we uh, went straight to stay with the missionaries that I was staying with. And we hadn't planned very much because it wasn't a country where you planned things. Things just, you had to plan it when you were there. But I had an extraordinary visit there, Sean. Uh, I went to a leper colony. I went to a, a, a village that treated schizophrenia in a very interesting way that took three days to get there wow. in a troop of cars and we kept having punctures. But along the way, we met lots of people because at that time, and probably even today, you couldn't travel as a single car. You had to travel in, a, in an entourage because otherwise you would end up being your car being stopped, possibly carjacked. They didn't have guns, but they had knives. It wasn't safe. You had to go in a whole entourage. So if one of those cars got a puncture, Sean, trust me, you were waiting for that car to be fixed before you could go on. You can imagine it took a long time. The roads weren't great. But when we got there, it was an extraordinary village set up where people with schizophrenia, they didn't have the drugs. They had a setup where they lived with the families and they tried to rehabilitate them that way. And they had a great success. And the other thing I did there was I, I looked at the malnutrition rates in the local areas and did a study of that. I visited the leper colony and it was, as you'd expect, Sean, right up a hill. Nobody went there. And I met an extraordinary man who got the rest. I handed him over all the money that I'd had. He got the profit because he'd literally given up his whole life to the people in that community. And he served them as their doctor. He cooked for them. He looked after them and he gave up any semblance of a personal life for himself. When I got there, it was just an extraordinary example of sacrifice. I saw people with leprosy. I saw them get better. I saw all the complications and that's a disease that you would never see. It was a, it was an amazing time. I had some fun uh, going back to the airport because we were kind of set upon by scammers. Okay. And, uh, yeah. So I saw all sorts of the countries. So we were set upon by scammers as we went back to get our flight from the airport and we had to give them the slip. I realized quite early on, we were in the car with a bunch of con artists. I was, I was worried about it because, but, but not to the point where I thought my life was in danger. I had a, another doctor with me and we just, we knew what the situation was. We knew we could be robbed. We knew we couldn't lose our air tickets and we didn't want our elective to end in this way. So we, we were just very brave when we got to the airport and gave them the slip. I mean, it was a bit classic film. We actually ran into the ladies' toilets, closed the door, 
stood up on the loo together, waited for them to come in, which they did. Look under the honestly, Sean, they were looking under the doors. Wow. There. I, it was it was the stuff of the films, but we did give them the slip and it was a learning experience because we shouldn't have put ourselves in that position, but we'd ended up. It's what happens sometimes but often when you go away to a foreign country, you, you let your guard down and uh, you have to remember the things that you would always think of in your own country. You let your guard down and uh, you can end up in a very tight situation. Uh, yeah. Now, did you make it? Did you make it safely back onto the plane eventually? We made it to the we made it to the plane, but it was a close run. It was a close run thing. Of course, we didn't have mobile phones or anything like that. Um, we had each other and our resourcefulness. Um, but once again, it was uh, it was an experience to remember. Absolutely. When you think about those types of trips, I mean, um, you know, even for me, trying to visualize uh, what the place looks like, I uh, have not been. Um, you know, what are some of the the key moments that you say you know, just visually uh, trying to give someone a picture of what you were seeing? You know, whether it was the the leprosy uh, colony, um, you know, any of the time you spent in your hotels, like any of the visuals, uh, help me describe kind of what the place and the space looked like. Well, Sean, I haven't told you about the time. <laughs> Sean, this is the funniest bit, Sean. I want to picture the scene. Mm-hmm. You're uh, you're in a hotel that actually doubles up as a brothel. You don't know that at the time because <laughs> you um, they don't tell you that in advance. Nah, and um, I was trying to get to a to a to a special island uh, for a holiday, really, at the end of the trip. But uh, my passport was stolen again. There were quite a few con artists, and this was it was stolen during the the day I spent the night I spent in this hotel. And uh, I had a very good chat to the ladies in this brothel without really realising what the whole place was about. I was very innocent in those days. Um, my passport was stolen. And I do remember them helping me out. And I went along to the local police station. There were a lot of, there was a complete electric failure. There were no, the electric lights was, wouldn't necessarily come on. So I did go to the police station to register the theft. And I was giving a police statement by candlelight. Uh, all It was being dutifully typed out so they reported the theft i had to go to the british embassy in ansirabay in antananarivo the capital so lots of things happened it was a lush tropical island almost paradise but if i can paint a picture that was almost like the veneer we didn't go to the tourist bits we went to the off the beaten track bits which were Mm -hmm. stunningly beautiful but underneath that there was a sub there was a there was a culture of theft, scam, and knives that you just had to be aware of. You could travel around and not feel that your life was in danger, but you always had to keep an eye out for the next thing, whether it was going to be a little a scam, your, your passport being stolen, your money being stolen. You just had to keep all ending up in a place that you wasn't quite what it seemed. So all of that happened to me. I would go back there in a shot, Sean. Um, it was a extraordinary experience. Absolutely. No, that, that's a fantastic journey. I want to switch to uh, something a bit more serious in some of the work that you did in the UK. Uh, There's a Dr. Salou. Uh, he was uh, wrongfully jailed for, uh, I believe, malpractice. Uh, we'd love to hear more about, you know, how you helped uh, that fight uh, and uh, kind of what that experience meant to you. Mr. Salou is, uh, is from Sierra Leone and he's a uh, He's a black African, 
and he was the senior surgeon in my hospital. Now I work for the NHS, I have for over 20 years and I cherish the NHS that you know, we are able to offer people treatment uh, which is free at the point of delivery and so even whatever they come in with their salary and whether they have insurance doesn't matter at all uh, we treat the patient and what's wrong with them it's not perfect no health system is but i i love the fact that i can work in that kind of system and do the best that i can for anybody that comes off the road and i have had people this morning that i've seen who who've been in that situation, but I also treat people with six-figure salaries and they get the same treatment and they have access to pretty much the same treatment as well. So that's that's the story of where we kind of met, although I didn't know him well. I knew his, I knew his wife very well, Catherine. And David was actually um, operating on a patient in a private hospital and the patient died, the patient had a perforated bowel and there were allegations made about the time it took to get this gentleman to theatre and the provisions of giving him antibiotics because he actually had an infection on board. And what was extraordinary about this case was at the beginning I, th I wondered whether he might be guilty because I believed in British justice and that hasn't fundamentally altered but I believed in it in those days in a before this case in a slightly naive way in that no smoke without fire, there must be something wrong when actually we know that time and time again things go wrong and juries don't always get it right although i think the jury system is the best we have so he J david was prosecuted uh, for manslaughter and we have a law here uh, called gross negligence manslaughter and you don't have the same thing in the states we'll talk a little bit about that but in england we have this law it's a common law so anybody is subject to it you don't have to be a healthcare worker you can be teacher you could be a fairground worker you could be a parent and if what you do and someone has to die and you have to have a duty of care towards them so it can't be someone random on the street that you don't have don't know it's got to be someone that they can say you had a duty of care towards them which is why you know, people working in public or the private system can be prosecuted or parents have a duty of care towards their child you can see how it works anyway this this is a, an unusual. It's it's, a, it's not common to prosecute people, but it does happen, and it's when the care of that patient, to use a healthcare example, was deemed to be so bad, so reckless, so negligent that it was truly exceptionally bad to a criminal degree, and that has to be decided by a jury rather than anyone else. And he was prosecuted for that. Nobody else was. The hospital wasn't prosecuted for corporate manslaughter. It was investigated by the police, in my view, in a very one-sided way. And it was certainly investigated by, by the hospital in a very one-sided way. And um, David ended up going to Belmarsh. And that caused shockwaves here that a surgeon in his senior years, with a completely unblemished career previously, could end up going to Belmarsh, where we send terrorists and rapists. It's a prison in the outskirts of London where we send terrorists and rapists. And there he was in the middle of Belmarsh. Again, it was no smoke without fire, but I was troubled by it. I was troubled by it because it happened in a private hospital and I felt that possibly uh, corporate, the corporate name had interfered with the administration of justice and who was fingered originally. And by the term finger, I mean finger pointed. When something goes wrong, why should there always be someone to blame? When we know in healthcare that it's usually 
always usually a series of things that go wrong, which means that there's one person at the end, but it's usually a series of things, the so-called system failures, that means that a patient may end up dying or becoming harmed. Harm is almost invariably about a series of events going wrong, a number of individuals not necessarily doing their job correctly, rather than one person getting out of bed one day, going into work and being recklessly negligent. And that's how they painted the case. Hmm. Uh, so I just smelt a rat, Sean. It took, so we, we commenced an appeal and I have to say, I am not a lawyer. So we had to hire lawyers. And what's interesting was the insurance company that originally defended David at trial and paid for the lawyers didn't originally come on board because appeals in this area, I mean, I didn't look at it at the time, Sean. <laughs> Uh, it was a good blind spot to have because there had never, ever been a successful appeal out of time because he lost his right to appeal. So we had to get that back for him in this area. Because, Sean, if you'd look Goodness. at it normally, you wouldn't do it, would you? If someone said to you in the whole, you know, ever since this law has been enacted, there has never been a successful out of time appeal, which is what you're attempting. You just right. do it. But we did because I was ignorant to that fact. And I'm glad I was ignorant because it would have put me off. It took about three years. Uh, I assembled lawyers. He has some fantastic friends who support him. And he's got a great family and we all worked as a team. And that team led by me and some amazing lawyers, because I absolutely couldn't have done it. The lawyers in the court were extraordinary, uh, meant that a miracle was pulled off, Sean, and uh, the, uh, the conviction was overturned. And it was a a supreme injustice. My, you know, I, I recognise absolutely the tragedy of what happened to the patient and his relatives and how they must be feeling. But they haven't been told the whole story here. And one man was not to blame for his death. And that became apparent. We came across cover-ups. We came across a whole legion of problems. But the main reason we won the appeal actually changed the law in England. And we won it because the judge, appeal court judges, who are not easily persuaded, their their job is to stop appeals. They're not easily persuaded people. We had a, a, what we call a really tough bench of judges to convince, to convince. But they won it. We won it because actually at the trial, um, the experts who were called for the prosecution played God really and weren't reined in by the judge in that they they themselves told the jury that they thought that this was all terribly grossly negligent beyond hmm. the pale, when actually that should have been the jury deciding that. And in a medical right. case, when it's hard, if, you've, if you're not trained in medicine, it's not something that most people are used to thinking about. If you're asking a jury to decide on the complexities of a medical case, you have to allow them to have the information they need, but not try and make the decision for them. And that wasn't blamed on the experts. It was blamed on the judge for not directing the jury properly. That's why you right. want Fascinating story. As you think about some of the folks who were on the opposing side of that, was it just folks trying to protect the inertia of the system? Were there corporate interests? Were there financial liabilities? Like, what's the driving force when you said, you know, folks are trying to sabotage or at least act against, you know, him in this situation? Um, who, who's on the other side of that? I think... Every other interest that wanted to be served, corporate interests, expert interests, wanting to, you know, find someone who'd caused it so the family were uh, could uh, trying to come to terms with their loved one. Ah, uh, they but put a bow on top of it. 
the de- the care here ab- of this man absolutely could have been better. There's no you know da- no doubt in my mind about that. Uh, but it was a it should have been a combination of hospital improved care, other individuals on duty improved care that day. Why you should single out one man uh, and try and lump it all on him, which is what this kind of prosecution encourages. What you get is a blame and cover up culture. And that is very detrimental. And the main reason it's detrimental, it means that it's toxic because people get scared. You put them in a criminal trial. They won't really come clean with really what happened that day. I'm not saying people lied, but actually the reality of what happened that day gets distorted because people are so worried about ending up behind bars themselves. So you're never going to get an open discussion. I can tell you, Sean, that in the last 10 years, they've really only found guilty black and ethnic minority doctors. There haven't been many prosecutions. But if you're going to find someone guilty and you look at the last 10 years and you find that it's really only, I mean, they've prosecuted about an equal number. But when you look at who's been found guilty, it was singularly black and ethnic minority practitioners. I have a big problem with that, Sean. If you're going to conduct a prosecution, you know, you've got to make sure that it's fair and you've got to level the playing field. You're not going to, you can't learn in healthcare and you can't make patients safe if people are working in a culture of fear. And that's what this did. And what's interesting, Sean, is since we did that, uh, although there have been investigations into healthcare workers, no one else has been charged with this offence in healthcare. Wow. By doing the appeal, I can tell you very much, Sean, it was a very lonely process. At the beginning, I was absolutely accused of, uh, why are you doing this? Okay, he's got an unblemished career, but he's really messed up here. Why are you defending someone who's guilty of a crime, being found guilty of that in a British court? I had lots of people dragging me off corridors saying, who were his friends, saying, what are you doing this for? They couldn't understand it. I can tell you that many of the organisations who, you know, the so-called establishment didn't return my calls. I wasn't asking them to interfere in the judicial process, but I was saying, do you not have a problem that a senior surgeon has been locked up in Belmarsh? It was a bit like the Good Samaritan. They looked the other way. They crossed over onto the other side of the road. So it was very lonely. Couldn't have got through that without David's wife, Catherine, his uh, friends, another lesson for life. There's no Mm -hmm. way that David's, we would have been able to mount such an action if David hadn't been the extraordinary man he is. Because make sure you cultivate your friends. Because when you're in the deepest of the deep trouble that you could be in, it's often your friends and your family that will get you out because they're the ones that really love you and they'll make the the sacrifices that are necessary. I suppose I was slightly different than that because I didn't know him very well. But I hate injustice and I really hate corporate injustice. I felt very strongly that he had been blamed when a corporation should have taken more responsibility. Though that's my opinion. Yeah. I hate I mean, that. That's a- Singling out the individual. It's just right. Not- well, and but uh, I do want to go back to just the you know your resilience and uh, I guess the collective of folks who uh, I guess eventually you know supported this. Um, you know, you were successful, right? And it shows uh, that even when you start off in those lonely days, staying the course can um, you know against all odds can uh, can lead to success uh, in certain cases. So 
Um, that's really interesting. Now, sure, one can, of, I just, oh, can I just go back to the previous point I made? Yep. I tell you that every single day I got up and I had, it was like, you know, I suppose Pilgrim carrying this sack on his back. Every single day I woke up, it was I was a failure. Mm. I can't even explain to you what it meant every day to get up. I mean, I think as human beings, we like to involve ourselves in risky things if we think there's going to be a success at the end of it. I can tell you, Sean, it was all about failure. Most wow. of the time it was all about failure. And I think the, the thing that kept me going was my faith. I, I'm a Christian. My church regularly prayed uh, for this appeal. And it might sound rather strange, but whenever I had a really difficult moment when I really didn't know what to do next, the only way I could get forward was to pray about it. And invariably something happened. Something was released that meant I could then go in some way go forward. I mean, looking at the whole thing, there was no roadmap. There was no plan that said, go here. If that happens, go there. It was something that you just had to keep walking forward. And there were a couple of things that really helped me. And it was a saying of Vincent Churchill. I'm sure your listeners have obviously heard of the great Winston Churchill, who I admire. They had a couple of things that really helped me on the way. And that was, when in hell, keep walking. Uh, and I hope that will help people out there. Because if you are in hell, or you're in something that feels like hell, just walking forward can be a, obviously an effort. You have to keep going. Get your friends into hell with you and get yourself out of there with their help. And also the, the man in the arena, uh, the extraordinary sp speech by Theodore Roosevelt, where he talks about the man in the, or woman in the arena where you're, you know, he talks about the armchair critics. I had so many of those to deal with. Lots of people mm. were prepared to give me very, you know, involved advice. But if you actually ask them to get involved or, do more than just give you advice or get themselves in, you know, don't just dab your toe in it, jump in, immerse yourself. No way, because that might have been dangerous for them to do that because they might, people want to be on the winning side. Um, so the man in the arena who actually doeth the deeds, that was so helpful reading that. And I also remembered when Winston Churchill went, one day he went to his school and he was getting on in years and he stood up to give a speech. And I could just imagine what that was like. All these people sitting expectantly waiting for Winston Churchill to open his mouth. He stood up. I'm sure you know the next bit, Sean, because he said, never, ever, ever, ever. I can't do a good Winston impression, but here we are. Ever, ever. I have a go. Ever, 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 <laughs> ever. And he kept going on. And people must be thinking, what? what is going on here? And then he goes, give up. And he sat down. And that was his speech. And it was the most extraordinary. He's obviously done extraordinary speeches, but that was one of the most extraordinary because that is absolutely true. Whatever situation you're in, if you have that in your head, because, Sean, the world has changed, hasn't it? We've moved on to COVID. We've had to deal with, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There is so much fear around uh, the Many people face losing their jobs, their livelihoods. If they get sick, how will they pay their bills? All of that. Uh, but somehow we have to keep going. And, and I found that really helpful on the days when I literally would cry in the shower, which might sound very 
well, I hope that doesn't sound weak. I don't mind admitting that I was very weak in areas. I did cry in the shower because then I could quickly clean my face again because it was the fear of failure of the injustice of, of it all and it going forward that made me weep, not for myself, but for the fact that it would stay on the books and if the conviction stood, he would lose his uh, primary surgical qualification, he would get struck off. It was almost as if he had not contributed in any positive way to so many people getting better and so many people regaining their health and vitality. It seemed an extraordinary way to treat a public servant. But, but my tears turned to joy when we overcame what had been, what had happened. And uh, it was a, a big turning point in my life and it helped me prepare for what came next, which really knocked the sock stuffing out of me. So you're on this multi-year journey. Um, you you finally do, you know, see success on this. Uh, what does happen next? Well, what happened next was the lawyers all got paid because you have to remember that this was all, you know, I'm, I'm not really interested in money. Uh, it was all, I did this all in my own time and worked through the night sometimes when it was required. And that meant that I didn't really go to bed a lot for three years. I had two children. I was still working a full-time job as a neurologist. I found it difficult at work because I worried that if I made any mistakes, I could end up in the same position. And uh, I was diagnosed with very aggressive cancer about three months after the appeal ended. So, Sean, I was very, very, very angry. Mm. Not because I did the appeal. None of this was anybody's fault. It was probably more my fault than anybody else uh, in that uh, I don't know how many doctors you know, but we tend to be, we're healers by our nature, but we have this blind spot to our own physical deform uh, infirmities. And there is something within us that says that we're there to look after other people, but we don't get sick. We have a, an odd way, a dis almost a dysfunctional way of dealing with our own illness. That's why there's quite a lot of doctors who have alcohol problems. Um, there's quite a high rate of you know, but doctors have mental illness just like other members of the population. But do we recognize that and do something about it as early as we mm. should do? Um, when it comes to physical illness, there's this mindset. And I absolutely thought that I wasn't someone to get cancer because it's not in my family. I thought I was healthy. I wasn't. I thought that uh Going, not going to bed on a frequent basis was okay. It isn't. It doesn't allow the body to renew properly. And there are all sorts of things, chemical reactions that mean that you're more prone to cancer if you don't sleep eight hours a night. If you don't exercise regularly, it's not just about obesity. It's about cancer. And uh, I think that's probably what did it. My children say it would have happened anyway if I hadn't done the appeal. And I think that's probably true. Anyway, so I was in the position where I was being told that I had very aggressive cancer and at one stage even that it might have spread and I had a limited life, very limited life expectancy. I remember being inside a PET scanner. I'll just explain exactly what that is. A PET scanner is a, a very, very sensitive scan uh, and it will pick up cancer if it's there. Not quite a cellular level but if there's any decent amount of cancer anyway it will pick them up 
And I had to have one of those and they were looking for spread of the, they, they found the cancer, I had breast cancer, it had spread into the skin, it had gone into my lymph nodes. It was a very large tumor. And this had all grown and I'd seen it, I'd felt it, but I never once thought it was cancer. And this is a neurologist who looks at tiny blobs on scans and says like, mm. something really weird. But in my own body, I was not prepared that I was growing a melon of cancer, but I wasn't prepared to think that that could be anything I needed to address because it, you know, it was going to be something simple like an abscess and that's, I could get that sorted out at a later date. Well, it caught up with me and uh, I was in a PET scanner looking for spread all around my body. And of course, it's hard as a doctor because you know exactly what they're looking for. I remember praying mm. a lot in the scan, praying so hard and uh, it wasn't around my body and they took it out and I had chemotherapy beforehand because it wasn't operable without chemotherapy, which shrunk it. Then it was operated on and I, I have to live with the risk of recurrence for the next all of my life now. Uh, and I have to live with that. It could come back at any time. And uh, but I'm alive and I'm very grateful for that. I have a loving family. I've had solid support throughout. But nothing prepares you for looking at your own histology report, your pathology report, talking about metastatic cancer, which is cancer that has spread to your lymph nodes or beyond. And um, nothing prepares you for the coffin life experience of going into an MRI scan. You have to understand, Sean, I sent all my patients into MRIs and not thought twice about it. But actually, it's a horrible experience to have an MRI. You're lying in what is essentially a coffin-like experience. And what I hope it's done, what I hope if you talk to my patients now as compared to before, I hope it's made me a more patient doctor. I hope it's made me listen more. And I hope that my patients understand about, I share very openly with them that I've had cancer because, and they, you can see their faces relax because it's a shared experience of someone who understands severe illness. And uh, I hope that that makes me a better doctor. Yeah. And that balance between um, your personal experience and you as a medical professional is quite interesting. And I mean, you are an advocate for the well-being of medical professionals across the UK. And uh, I guess, you know, kind of moving to current day, as you think about the pandemic and all the things that medical professionals have to kind of navigate, you know, but then also thinking about your personal experience. What do you think that we need to do a better job as uh, either uh, the medical profession or as society uh, to, to, you know, to your earlier point, to be fair on both sides, right? To treat our, our patients the way they need to be treated, but also support um, medical professionals properly? Well, I think, first of all, our politicians need to show leadership in this respect. I think they, they have to sort they have to say that defensive medicine. I mean, I know in the States, I've got figures for the States that, uh, you know, one in every four dollars is spent on defensive medicine tests. And by defensive medicine, what I mean, it must be similar in the UK. It's just that there's more published figures in the state. Why it's important and what I mean by defensive medicine is that that's when a doctor will order extra tests, which actually might be dangerous of themselves. Or when I say dangerous, I mean having extra risk. Mm -hmm. And not ordering that test necessarily to find more out about the diagnosis on the patient. They're ordering that test because they are worried that they might miss something really, really rare and get sued. And it's what we call defensive medicine. And what it does is 
adds racks up massive costs. Remember, if you didn't have to do that, your medicine healthcare delivery would be so much cheaper. Number two, it means that the patient is subject to more tests. And I know what that's like. I now will do anything I can to avoid tests, unless they're the really wily ones I need. Because for me, having extra tests could mean that somebody sees extra cancer. Now, that's important in one respect. But in another respect, it generates anxiety every time I have to have a scan. So I'm very careful now about when I order scans for my patients, because I know that actually that's going to cause them anxiety. I have a much greater insight into that. Whereas before it was all about me and covering my back. It's more now about making sure I think about the patient and the impact on them. Because as a patient myself, I understand what scans and tests, how worrying they can be. So we want leadership from our politicians that to recognise that honest error, which is essentially what a lot of this is, most of this is about, should certainly not be rewarded with criminal sanctions. No one is saying that doctors or nurses should be above the law. Everybody agrees that people should be held to a common standard. But in healthcare, every day, a lot of decisions we make, if there's a jail sentence possibly hanging over that patient dies and I do an operation which might be risky but might be the only thing that saves them, that patient may then just lose their life chances. And I know my husband's a surgeon and I think it's important to recognise here, I'm a neurologist, that means I look at the brain and spine and muscle, my job is much more, is, is lower risk. The chances of me facing a criminal sanction are far lower than a, an acute surgeon or anaesthetist who has to make very often rapid decisions. And these things are not always obvious at the time. And operating on people can be fraught. It can be a very fine balance about when to intervene. And you don't always get it right because you're a human being and you're prone to error. Uh, to err is human, of course, sure, we know that. So they have to, to say to themselves, how can we make healthcare uh, more efficient, less costly, safer for patients? What is true is going after people with toxic criminal sanctions means that people are more likely to cover up. They won't discuss their errors, which means they're more likely to happen again, which means that other patients will be affected. So we want politicians and the public to say, do you know what, this blame game, that's, it's not getting us anywhere. It's making mm -hmm. care costs unexorbitant. Un it's sending honest people to prison, very often black and ethnic minorities. That's completely wrong. Not only previously with Black Lives Matter now. What is that about if it isn't about justice and treating people fairly? and not fingering out the nearest black and ethnic minority um, practitioner. It should never be, I'm not saying that's what the original problem was when they set out to, to, to do the prosecution of David, but I am saying that I think his race did play a part, and I am absolutely sure that if he had been white and middle class, he would not have ended up where he was, and the same for Hadiza Balagaba, another doctor who was convicted of manslaughter, who's a trainee. It severely worries me that in this day and age, we can't do it some other way, talk about these errors, learn from them in an open way. And by that way, not only do we have better practitioners, less healthcare costs, we have safer patients. And that absolutely should be a top priority 
you cannot have a higher priority than making patients safer. And that is a way to do it. But if a doctor has been reckless, has lied, has drunk alcohol and gone on duty, has done deliberate things like that, of course they should be held to criminal sanctions. Nobody's right. not. Yeah. Tell me about your involvement with uh, the NHS. Well, one organisation I'd like to mention here that I've taken great pride in being a member of is the Doctors' Association UK. And I'm their Learn Not Blame lead there. The campaign was started by a doctor called Dr. Cicely Cunningham. I've taken over from her and we take on Learn Not Blame. And we try and, we're trying to bring that into every hospital and community setting in the, in the UK. We're a voluntary organisation and we speak out on things that we affect doctors, but actually mean that if we speak out of them, they will improve the NHS. We've spoken out a lot about COVID. There were a lot of problems here in the beginning of COVID with uh, personal protective equipment. The government was slow to, they didn't stockpile their pandemic planning. Uh, they had an exercise in 2016, Operation Cygnus, where they should have planned better for the pandemic. They should have stockpiled PPE. They didn't to an adequate degree. Uh, we lost a lot of healthcare workers. A lot of healthcare workers have died in this country. And that's not all due to failures of PPE, but certainly we have great concerns that some of the deaths were. And so many doctors going and nurses going into work, looking after patients with COVID-19 were subject to a higher risk than they should have been. And they didn't have adequate PPE for the job that they were doing. Now, Doctors and nurses are not used to going to work and potentially losing their lives. There are professions where that happens, but it wasn't something that in healthcare we were expecting as a result of this pandemic. Uh, there should have been much more ready, uh, pandemic readiness. So we spoke out a lot on that. We were able to hold the government to account uh, regularly on national television uh, for gaps in provision. And in, uh, a lot of the time we also divide, diverted resources to help groups deliver that PPE to the people who were short of it. We didn't take over the government's job, but we helped on a voluntary basis to help. And that was part of the work I did as well. Uh, there are many vibrant individuals who are part of uh, the Doctors Association UK. And we exist to essentially uh, help improve the lives of doctors. And by doing that, raise ish core issues about NHS, be it safety issues, be it uh, we've done a lot of work on our on uh, how our doctors from abroad have been teachers and treated and also doctors here who require visas. And you know, there's been a lot of successes. There's been failures, too, but there have been we've learned through the failures and we have highlighted on an ongoing basis through media, through the you know, newspapers and television and also communication with our members, um, how all those issues so that there is an ongoing, vibrant uh, debate and exposition of, of, of those problems and also solutions, not just saying this is terrible, that's terrible. We also try and find solutions. I tend to work on the legal side. I help doctors in trouble. There are many doctors who haven't necessarily been able to afford insurance. There are black and ethnic minority doctors who've been bullied. There are people who have seen unsafe practices. Um, this is where I was saying the NHS is not perfect, in, but they've seen unsafe practices, not only in 
the NHS, but also in private healthcare. They they come to us and they want to speak out about that, but then they found themselves victimised, so-called whistleblowers. So I hope that I continue for many years to come looking after these uh, doctors, raising concerns and being a port of call for them when I'm not actually taking some more rest because I've tried to reverse the seriously bad effects of sleep deprivation and learn from that myself and not be in the position I was again where I just ignore the effect physically of my workload on my body, admit that I'm a human being, admit that I'm prone to diseases, prone to problems. And uh, so I've changed my ways. I've cut down my hours. I'm not such a workaholic, but I'm still what I was, what I very much was. And that is a risk taker, but not dangerous risk. I'm still very determined and I'm still very obsessive. And those are the core things that I've used to try and, I suppose, fight for people that don't always get their voices heard. And being part of this organisation, which does the same thing, is a natural fit for me. That, that makes a lot of sense. As we're wrapping up, uh, a couple things. First, I would love to hear any of your thoughts on the contrast of what you're seeing uh, in the medical industry and profession in the UK with uh, any of the things you're observing here in the States? I've tried to sort of keep out of politics, but I suppose I've, I've always had a natural love of politics. You know, I've been a councillor in the local, I've been on the local council for eight years before I had children. And uh, I've been very involved in uh, the, the, obviously we know that Britain is, is, is Brexiting. We're leaving the European Union. I'm a very strong Remainer. I think that's a very bad decision. I know that our government is in the process of tra- setting up a trade deal with the US. I, li- I love the US. I think it's a great country I've visited on a number of occasions. I've even taken part in some political campaigns in the US. Cool. Uh, it was a great day. I actually came over for John Kerry when he was going running for office. I had such a good day. I met lots of people on the sidewalk and I gave them, I helped them out. There were, some of them weren't feeling very well. Okay. Yeah, so I treated their headaches, which is, I thought that was a good job for a neurologist. I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> he didn't win, but I had a great, great, unique time in 2004, coming over and seeing how American politics uh, operated. Um, right. So I am concerned that the NHS might be part of a trade deal, and I, I really don't think that should happen. I'm concerned about that because for all the reasons I've said to you about how much the NHS is valued over here, and it's really shown its strength during the COVID crisis in how it was how it was so resilient. And I'm, I credit fully the healthcare workers and the staff of the NHS in being able to provide the care that they did. They were the ones that turned their skills into, you know, they upskilled. So surgeons became anaesthetists. They took training on ventilators. Whole wards were turned over to COVID wards. Other wards were kept clean so they could you know, keep treating patients who came in with non-COVID things. That was all about the resilience of the NHS staff. I'm not going to credit the politicians with any of that. It was awesome just seeing all of that happen in front of my very eyes. So I don't want any of that to change. And I think over here, people have become even more aware of just how important the NHS is to them because of what happened in the crisis and how the NHS was there for them. So we really don't want that to happen. We don't want to see the NHS broken up in any way as a result of this trade deal. And so that would be my plea to all the politicians, because whether you vote Republican or Democrat, 
And whatever happens in November, and I have my own thoughts on Trump, which I won't bore people with, because I don't want that to distract from the really important points of what we've been talking about today. And I hope that anyone listening who's in a difficult place, putting the politics aside, uh, we live in a changed world, but if you're hurting and if you're in a difficult place, then just remember about what Churchill said about not giving up. Whenever you see a failure happening in your life, think to yourself, how can I turn that into something that actually means that it's a success? Because I look back on what happened to David and how we did the appeal. That was all about failure. And we just learned how to fail better. And then we won. And that's so very often in life when you have failures, like you're starting your own business or, you know, that fails, but then that gives you an idea for something else. So never see absolute failure as failure. Think to yourself, how can I learn from that? How can how can that actually... So that that's how you develop this, you know, horrible word in one sense, resilience, but in another word, a good word. And what resilience means is it just means staying power. And not to sweat about the small stuff. I used to sweat before I had cancer. I mean, I hate cancer, but there's a couple of things anyone out there with cancer will really recognise. That is that, first of all, you don't worry so much after cancer about the small stuff. What a shame we couldn't learn that early on in our lives. What a shame that cancer's the thing that has to teach us that you don't sweat the small stuff. What a shame that cancer is the thing that teaches you to value every day more, to look at the sun more, to value your family more. What a shame that it's very often that cancer that teaches you that. But cancer gives so many bad things, but there are also some things that cancer gives you that you wish you'd taken on before. And so when there's a batch of good weather or when you've eaten a nice meal or when someone says, I love you, or when somebody just says something good about you, just... It's all about just valuing that moment a bit more. And that is something that cancer's given me a bit better. I'm absolutely still not a perfect person. I still get angry and frustrated. But cancer's given me, taken away an awful lot, but it's it's also given me things that I should have realized some time ago. Yeah, that's powerful. I want to close uh, with another points in your travel, uh, another moment, if you will. You visited the uh, Amani Desert. Tell me about that. My gosh, it's got to be one of the most amazing things. I mean, desert. Have you ever been to a desert, Sean? I'm from Arizona, so I've been in a southwestern U.S. desert. I have not been yeah. into, um, you know, what people would call a proper desert. Well, I've never been into a desert either. And uh, this was a desert. And it wasn't like I'd got on a camel and strode off for days and days and days. So I suppose it's not really, I'm not trying to say I suddenly turned into Lawrence of Arabia because I most certainly didn't. I went out there in a jeep. And I was with the Selus. I was with David and Catherine. I was with my husband. And uh, it was quite a funny day because I was on a diet. And uh, they'd stored up this feast. And I'd made a chickpea cake. I had just forgotten to put in the very vital ingredient, which was some kind of sweetener. So we had the extraordinary experience of trying to eat this chickpea cake when everybody was being very polite to me. But uh, actually what they wanted to do was what they did at the end, which was throw it into the desert you know, into the desert sand <laughs> because it was so vile. But in doing that and uh, the laughs that that created, we had the most wonderful evening of hope. We, uh, this was after his conviction. This was after I'd been diagnosed and treated with cancer. And it was all about in a desert, the moon takes on the most extraordinary significance. 
because all you can actually see otherwise is sand. So the moon, whereas you'd see it at night, you think, oh, that's the moon. In the desert, the moon is bigger, brighter, and just more beautiful. And sounds, there's this silence, which you can only, the purity and quality of that silence, you can't get, I think, anywhere else apart from a desert. And I remember that there were many trouble spots as I am on is an amazing country because it's a peaceful country, but it is sound. It is surrounded by many countries, which, which are not. And you could see the borders of those countries from this desert. And I just remember thinking about peace and the peace that you could be in, in the middle of all of this sand and the moon, nothing else, the company of friends, and then I could just see these lights of these troubled areas. And I remember, remember praying and thinking, I just prayed a, a prayer of peace, really, that, that the peace of the desert would somehow promote peace in a greater form to more countries. And it was just a very beautiful moment because I'd never felt so much really at peace than I did that night in that stillness and that quiet and the moon and just the sand uh, and, and deserts I think perhaps unlike anywhere else can promote that so I would recommend a desert a safe desert the <laughs> chance if someone ever says to you come on let's go and spend a night in the desert just say I'm there because you'll make have it, an amazing make, experience make it happen make it happen. um yeah What's the message? I mean, you've dropped so many gems for myself and the listeners uh, today. Uh, but if we were to kind of sum this up, what message would you share with the world? I think it's about my main my main message is always to maintain some kind of perspective on life. Life can often be incredibly frustrating. It can make us angry. Uh, I'm still prone to anger. It can make us I mean, that anger, it's not always bad anger, is it? It can be good anger because we can get angry about injustice, which is what happened in David's case. And I remember being experiencing white hot anger as I delved into the case and really got to grips with what had gone on. It was dark. It was so dark, Sean. It was the edge of darkness. And that made me righteously anger, angry. But anger as a whole is not good for you. So try to be less... I think anger doesn't serve us as human beings. And the only way we can dispel our anger, I think, is, is to get a greater perspective on where we're going and what our ultimate purpose is. And realising that anger is one of those unspent, those emotions that doesn't ever really get us anywhere unless we're angry about injustice or anything really positive. So it's all about maintaining perspective on life, spending time with those you love, Realising that we're not here forever, and so not abusing your body, but not worshipping it to the extent that you don't, you know, don't move on with some of the really important things. But also seeing the value in failure, uh, not seeing failure as necessarily a, very, a negative thing. If I look back at the turning points of my life, it's absolutely true. When I thought I'd failed or I'd gone down the wrong course or something had happened that was 
not within my plans or I had not been able to control and it happened. It actually turned out to be the right thing. And uh, very often, if you try and control everything, you will end up in the wrong place. So try not to control everything. Try to take some risks, take risks for others that mean that you put yourself out there and you put themselves in their shoes. I haven't mentioned probably one of the fame, the most, one of my most treasured influences in my life is actually Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He is a German pastor. He was hanged by Hitler at the end, in a very cruel way, at the end of the war. Uh, an extraordinary man. And he used to have, the, he had this saying that you can never really understand somebody unless you go out there and be with them and walk in the walk in their shoes and live their life with them and try and understand about that and i think if we all did more of that then i think we would get first of all be happier people so we would not be prone to these bouts of anger we would get more purpose in our lives we would be able to cope with all the better with all some of the really awful things when storms come which have afflicted the whole world in recent times it's amazing how it is true that if you solely focus on yourself and the things that haven't gone right if you can turn that around and try and focus on other people it always helps you it always lifts you and you will always achieve more and so I think that's probably my message I never get that right all the time myself but the turning points of my life have been what I've learned most from is the points of failure when I've often been trying to help somebody else and turning into something positive and spending time with them. And um, you could say that being executed at the end of World War II by Hitler was a failure of his life. But what's extraordinary about that man is that his life has been studied and influenced so many people, not only, not only people like me, who are just a jobbing neurologist, but people who are like world leaders, you know, presidents of Australia, South Africa, they've all been influenced by the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, and the extraordinary sacrifice, the way he showed true leadership. He stood up to Hitler. He spoke truth to power. He paid with his life. But his example has meant that other lives have been lived of such richness and power that was his legacy. It wasn't that it all ended at the end of the hangman's noose in Flossenburg in 1945. It has empowered generations throughout history, um, and as have, has, of course, the life of Jesus Christ. But we can take humans who've also lived very powerful lives as well and see how even to the point of death, their own death has left such a powerful legacy for us as we live our lives that it's just extraordinary and I think that's what I'd like to leave people with that that you could see that as a failure but actually we look back now uh, nearly a hundred years after his death and say what an extraordinary legacy just a human being can make who has such a tremendous faith and he did have a tremendous faith in God but it wasn't just about that it was the way he lived his life. All very well said. This has been Excellent. Dr. Bond, thank you again for joining us today, for sharing your story. Uh, it truly was fantastic. I appreciate everything. Oh, thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I send my best wishes to all your listeners, whatever place they're in, and 
I hope that something of what I've said has helped them. Absolutely. And thanks for everyone joining us today, this conversation with Dr. Vaughn. We hope you've enjoyed your time as well. As usual, if you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please reach out at hello at truevoice.com. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.